0: All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton standing in the confessional corner as we continue looking through the Apology of the Augsburg Confession, Article 5 on love and fulfilling the law. This week, we look at the adversary's teaching as it is based on reason and the law. This is a bit of a longer section, so we'll have a little bit more to say in some points and cover a little bit more ground, so I might be going a little bit faster, but I promise to try to make it as coherent as possible. All right, we are looking at paragraphs 167 to 194 as we look at this natural reasoning, which is what the Roman theologians were working with. All right, Paragraphs 167 to 168. The former way of justification they teach is that people merit grace by good works, both in merely an agreeable way and in a wholly deserving way. The way is a doctrine of reason. For reason, not seeing the uncleanness of the heart, thinks that it pleases God if it performs good works. Therefore, other works and other acts of worship are constantly invented by people in great peril to defend against the terrors of conscience. The pagans and the Israelites slew human victims and undertook many other most painful works in order to appease God's anger. Afterward, orders of monks were invented and these challenged each other in the severity of their observances against the terrors of conscience and God's anger. This way of justification, because it is according to reason and is completely occupied with outward works, can be understood and be done to a certain extent. To this end, the canon lawyers have distorted the misunderstood church ordinances which were enacted by the fathers for a far different purpose. The fathers did not intend that we follow the ordinances in order to seek after righteousness, but they were given for the sake of mutual peace among people so that there might be a certain order in the church. In this way, the canon lawyers also distorted the sacraments and most especially the mass. Through them, they seek righteousness, grace, and salvation by the outward act. Another way of justification is handed down by the scholastic theologians when they teach that we are righteous through a habit infused by God, which is love. They say that, aided by this habit, we keep God's law outwardly and inwardly, and that this fulfilling of the law is worthy of grace and of eternal life. This doctrine is plainly the doctrine of the law. For what the law says is true. You shall love the Lord your God, Deuteronomy 6.5. Also, you shall love your neighbor, Leviticus 19.18. Love is, therefore, the fulfilling of the law. Alright, so Melanchthon here shows out two different aspects of Roman justification. Is that first of all, it's just that we have different levels of justification, that we have an agreeable way, and that we have a deserving way. And that the good works are there because of the deservingness. And this goes into all the different things that the Roman church had done throughout the Middle Ages that brought about the many different things that were going on at the time of the Reformation. And all of these, they could trace back to the fathers. But Melanchthon points out that the fathers did not intend that we follow the ordinances in order to seek after righteousness, but they were given for the sake of mutual peace among people, that there might be a certain order in the church, that all things might be done properly and in good order. 1 Corinthians 14. This is what the Church Fathers wanted. This is why they had set up different rules and different liturgies and even the different orders of monks and nuns that they had in the early centuries. Not because they were seeking righteousness, but they were seeking a way to benefit each other and display the mutual peace. Now you get on the academic side, the scholastics, then well, we have this habit of love that is infused in us in our baptism. And that takes even the not-quite-perfect good works and makes them more acceptable. So that then love becomes the fulfilling of the law. Which, yes, as Paul would even say, love is the fulfilling of the law. But again, our love is imperfect. We can't love perfectly as God loves. Melanchthon continues on in paragraph 169. But it is easy for a Christian to judge about both of these ways of justification because both exclude Christ. They are, therefore, to be rejected. In the former, which teaches that our works are an atoning sacrifice for sin, the impiety is clear. The latter way contains much that is harmful. It does not teach that we are, when we are born again, we make use of Christ. It does not teach that justification is the forgiveness of sins. It does not teach that we attain the forgiveness of sins before we love, but falsely represents that we rouse in ourselves the act of love through which we merit the forgiveness of sins. Nor does it teach that we overcome the terrors of sin and death through the faith in Christ. It falsely claims, by their own fulfilling of the law, that without Christ as the atoning sacrifice, people come to God finally it claims that this very fulfilling of the law without christ as the atoning sacrifice is righteousness worthy of grace and eternal life nevertheless scarcely a weak and feeble fulfilling of the law happens even in saints it's a great idea that you know this infused grace and this infused love leads us to have a more and better view of our works and that we might be spurred on to even more works. But the problem is everything is without Christ. It is all me and my doing. And if it's all about me and my doing, why did Jesus die in the first place? Why do we have this entire setup where everything in the Bible revolves around the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? If we can do it all ourselves? That's the question that still cannot be answered. We go on into paragraphs 170 through 176, a long section with just a recapitulation of a lot of things that we've already talked about in these episodes on Apology Article 5. Truly, if anyone will think about it, he will most easily understand that the gospel has not been given in vain to the world, and that Christ has not been promised and set forth, has not been born, has not suffered, has not risen again in vain. He will most easily understand that we are justified not by reason or by the law. Therefore, in regard to justification, we are compelled to disagree with the adversaries. For the gospel shows another way. The gospel compels us to make use of Christ in justification. The gospel teaches that through Christ we have access to God through faith. It teaches that we ought to set him as mediator and atoning sacrifice against God's anger. The gospel teaches that through faith in Christ the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation are received and the terrors of sin and of death are overcome. Paul also says that righteousness is not of the law but of the promise. The Father has promised that he wants to forgive, that for Christ's sake he wants to be reconciled. This promise, however, is received through faith alone, as Paul testifies in Romans 4.13. This faith alone receives the forgiveness of sins, justifies, and regenerates. Then love and other good fruit follow. Therefore, we teach that a person is justified, as we have said above, when conscience, terrified by the preaching of repentance, is cheered and believes that for Christ's sake it has a reconciled God. Faith is counted as righteousness before God. Romans 4.3-5. When the heart is cheered and quickened through faith in this way, it receives the Holy Spirit. He renews us so that we are able to keep the law, to love God and God's word, to be submissive to God in afflictions, to be chaste, to love our neighbor, and so on. Even though these works are far from the perfection of the law, on account of faith, they please God. Through faith we are counted righteous, because we believe that for Christ's sake we have a reconciled God. These things are plain and in harmony with the gospel, and can be understood by persons of sound mind. From this foundation, it can easily be decided why we attribute justification to faith, and not to love. Love follows faith, because love is the fulfilling of the law, Romans 13.10. But Paul teaches that we are justified not from the law, but from the promise, which is received only through faith. We neither come to God without Christ as mediator, nor receive the forgiveness of sins for the sake of our love, but for the sake of Christ. Likewise, we are not able to love God while he is angry, and the law always accuses us, always presents an angry God to us. Therefore, we must take the promise through faith that for Christ's sake the Father is reconciled and forgives. Afterward, we begin to keep the law. Our eyes are to be cast far away from human reason, far away from Moses, upon Christ. We are to believe that Christ is given to us in order that for his sake we may be counted righteous. In the flesh, we never satisfy the law. Therefore, we are counted righteous, not because of the law, but because of Christ. His merits are granted us if we believe on him. We are not justified by the law because human nature cannot keep God's law and cannot love God. We are justified from the promise in which for Christ's sake, reconciliation, righteousness, and eternal life have been promised. If anyone, therefore, has considered these foundations, he will easily understand that justification must necessarily be attributed to faith. It is not in vain that Christ has been promised and set forth, that he was born and has suffered and been raised again. The promise of grace in Christ is not in vain. It was made immediately from the beginning of the world, apart from and beyond the law. The promise should be received through faith, as 1 John 510 10-12 says. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Christ says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. John 8:36. Paul says in Romans 5, 2, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. By faith in Christ, therefore, the promise of the forgiveness of sins and of righteousness is received. Neither are we justified before God by reason or by the law. So again, this is a recap of many of the things that we have talked about. that Again, if we can do it all ourselves, why do we have Jesus? Why is Jesus promised right after the fall into sin? to crush the serpent's head, if eventually we're going to do it anyway. I mean, it doesn't make sense. And anyone who actually thinks about it and understands the promise of Christ and the promises only come through faith, then they will understand that everything revolves around Christ. They will leave the notions of Rome and come with the reformers and join their evangelical cause, or even better, bring about the reformations that Luther wanted to do in the Roman church and there not be a split between the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans. If only that would have happened. We continue on, beginning with paragraph 177. These things are so plain and so clear, we wonder how the insanity of the adversaries is so great that it calls them into doubt. The proof is clear. Since we are justified before God, not from the law, but from the promise, it is necessary to attribute justification to faith. What can be opposed to this proof unless someone wishes to abolish the entire gospel and the entire Christ? Christ's glory becomes more brilliant when we teach that we make the most of him as our mediator and atoning sacrifice. Godly consciences see that the most abundant consolation is offered to them in this doctrine. They see that they ought to believe and most firmly assert that they have a reconciled Father for Christ's sake and not for the sake of our righteousness. Yet they also see that Christ aids us so that we are able to keep the law as well. The adversaries deprive the church of such great blessings as these when they condemn and work to wipe out the doctrine about the righteousness of faith. Therefore, let all good minds beware of consenting to the godless counsels of the adversaries. In the adversaries' teaching about justification, no mention is made of Christ and how we ought to set him against God's anger, as though we are able to overcome his anger by love, or to love an angry God. In regard to these things, consciences are left in uncertainty. For if they think that they have a reconciled God because they love and keep the law, they will always doubt whether they have a reconciled God." This is so because they either do not feel this love, as the adversaries acknowledge, or they certainly feel that it is very small. Much more often they feel that they are angry at God's judgment. They feel he oppresses human nature with many terrible evils, with troubles of this life, the terrors of eternal anger, and so on. When, therefore, will conscience be at rest? When will it be quieted? When, in this doubt and in these terrors, will it love God? What else is the doctrine of the law than a doctrine of despair? Let any one of our adversaries come forward to teach us about this love, how he himself loves God. They do not at all understand what they say. They only echo, just like the walls of a house, the little word love without understanding it. Their teaching is confused and shadowy. It not only transfers Christ's glory to human works, but also leads consciences either to arrogance or to despair. But our teaching, we hope, is readily understood by pious minds and brings godly and wholesome consolation to terrified consciences. For as the adversaries mock that also many wicked people and devils believe, as in James 2.19, we have frequently said already that we speak of faith in Christ, namely of faith in the forgiveness of sins, of faith that truly and heartily assents to the promise of grace. This is not brought about without a great struggle in human hearts. People of sound mind can easily judge the faith that believes that we are cared for by God, that we are forgiven and heard by him. It is something that surpasses nature, for by itself the human mind makes no decision about God. Therefore, this faith of which we speak is neither in the wicked nor in devils. Alright, so once again we have this whole thing of the adversaries depriving the consciences of the people that great solace. Of forgiveness instead continuing to make sure people doubt and then in that doubt go well. this is how you can overcome the doubt but then they never really can get over the doubt they never really can love like they are supposed to it is all just a big shadowy mess that continues to go on in millions of shades of gray just from one to another to another and nobody has peace all right we continue on with paragraphs 183 to 191 long section here kind of switching gears a little bit but continuing to build on the idea if we actually used our reason and faith to guide that reason we would know better Furthermore, if any learned person objects that righteousness is in the will, and therefore it cannot be attributed to faith, which is in the intellect, the reply is easy. In the schools, even such persons acknowledge that the will commands the intellect to agree with God's word. We say also, quite clearly, just as the terrors of sin and death are not only thoughts of the intellect, but also horrible movements of the will fleeing God's judgment, so faith is not only knowledge in the intellect, but also confidence in the will. In other words, it is to want and to receive that which is offered in the promise, namely reconciliation and the forgiveness of sins. Scripture uses the term faith this way as the following sentence of Paul testifies in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, in this passage, to justify means, according to court language, to acquit a guilty person and declare him righteous. But this happens because of the righteousness of another namely, of Christ. This righteousness is communicated to us through faith. Therefore, since our righteousness in this passage is the credit of the righteousness of another, we must here speak about righteousness in a way different than in philosophy or in a civil court. There we seek after the righteousness of one's own work, which is certainly in the will. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, "'He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, "'whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness "'in sanctification and redemption.'" And in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. But because Christ's righteousness is given to us through faith, faith is righteousness credited to us. In other words, it is that by which we are made acceptable to God on account of the credit and ordinance of God. As Paul says, faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 4.3 and 5 again. Although, because of certain hard to please people, we must say technically, faith is truly righteousness because it is obedience to the gospel. For it is clear that obedience to the command of a superior is truly a kind of distributive justice. This obedience to the gospel is credited for righteousness. So, only because of this, because we grasp Christ as the atoning sacrifice, are good works or obedience to the law pleasing. We do not satisfy the law, but for Christ's sake this is forgiven us. As Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1 This faith gives God the honor, gives God that which is his own. By receiving the promises, it obeys him. Just as Paul also says, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Romans 4.20 So the worship and divine service of the gospel is to receive gifts from God. On the contrary, the worship of the law is to offer and present our gifts to God. However, we can offer nothing to God unless we have first been reconciled and born again. This passage, too, brings the greatest comfort, as the chief worship of the gospel is to desire to receive the forgiveness of sins, grace, and righteousness. Christ says of this worship, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John six forty, And the Father says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Matthew seventeen five. The adversaries speak of obedience to the law, but they do not speak of obedience to the gospel. We cannot obey the law unless we have been born again through the gospel. We cannot love God unless we have received the forgiveness of sins. For as long as we feel that he is angry with us, our human nature runs away from his anger and judgment. If anyone should object that this view of faith, which desires those things offered by the promise, becomes confused with hope, we answer as follows. Hope expects things, and hope and faith cannot be separated in reality. Such needless debate takes place in the schools. The epistle to the Hebrews defines faith as the assurance of things hoped for, Hebrews 11.1. Yet, if anyone wants a distinction between faith and hope, we say that the object of hope is properly a future event, but that faith is concerned with future and present things. Faith receives the forgiveness of sins offered in the promise in the present. All right, so we have this moment here where we take account what is truly worship, what is truly righteousness and pleasing to God. And what do we have? back to paragraph 189 again the worship and divine service of the gospel is to receive gifts God wants to give us gifts through his service and worship on the contrary the worship of the law is us giving our gifts to God us presenting God with gifts trying to buy his favor the worship of faith is that God has already reconciled us God has already paid the price. There is nothing we can bring to God. And as Isaiah says, our best works are nothing but filthy rags. And it gets very more graphic in the Hebrew, but we'll just leave it at that and filthy at the moment. But this passage about God's reconciliation is what brings us comfort because the chief worship of the gospel is that desire to receive the forgiveness of sins, to receive grace, to receive Christ's righteousness. And then he goes on into, the adversaries want to have this delineation between hope and faith. And Melanchthon makes a very simple, very important statement about this. If anyone wants a distinction between faith and hope, we say that the object of hope is properly a future event, but that faith is concerned with future and present things. Faith receives the forgiveness of sins offered in the promise in the present. The difference between faith and hope is a fine line faith accepts the gifts in the present, hope looks to the future. We have faith in Jesus and the forgiveness of our sins now. We have the hope of everlasting life with him in heaven. It's a minute difference. But again, the schools and the scholastics love having these minute debates. And so therefore, that was a lot of the Middle Ages. It is just one school arguing with another over the little minutiae like How many angels can fit on the head of a pen? And silly questions like that. All right, we're going to finish up with paragraphs 192 to 194. From these statements, we hope that it is clear both what faith is and that we are justified, reconciled, and regenerated through faith. We are compelled to hold on to these teachings because we want to teach the righteousness of the gospel, not the righteousness of the law. For those who teach that we are justified by love teach the righteousness of the law. They do not teach us in justification to trust in Christ as mediator. These things are also clear. We overcome the terrors of sin and death not through love, but through faith. For we cannot set up our love and fulfilling of the law against God's wrath, because Paul says, through Christ we have obtained access to God by faith, Romans 5.2. We often emphasize this sentence so that we are understood. The sentence shows most clearly our whole argument, and when carefully considered, can teach abundantly about the whole matter. It can console good minds. So it is helpful to have it at hand and in sight, that we may be able to set it against the doctrine of our adversaries. They teach that we come to God not through faith, but through love and merits, without Christ as mediator. This sentence also helps us when we fear, so that we may cheer ourselves and exercise faith. This is also clear. We cannot keep the law without Christ's aid. He himself says, "Apart from me, you can do nothing." John 15:5. So before we keep the law, our hearts must be born again through faith. Again, they talk about Paul's teachings and especially his teachings in the Romans as they continue to bring up Bible passage after Bible passage, grounding their argument of righteousness by faith from the scriptures. And especially here, he emphasizes Romans 5.2 as he concludes this section. Through Christ, we have obtained access to God by faith. Everything we have is because of Christ. Our reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of our sins, grace, mercy, peace, everything else that we want in our lives and in our worship is all there. Not because of us, not because of our love, not because of our works, because of Christ and his love, his work, because it's his mercy, his forgiveness, his reconciliation that he gives. And that is what is most important and would be seen easily if the adversaries would simply actually look at what the scriptures say Mm -hmm. and not what they want them to say. All right, that is enough for the Confessional Corner this week. Next week, we get into the whole idea of, again, Rome demands doubt in your salvation. It did back in the 16th century. It does still in the 21st century. Unfortunately, the Roman theologians, the Pope and all of them, want you to doubt that you are forgiven. Want you to doubt that you will be saved. Therefore, they invented purgatory and things like that to help you have a little bit of comfort a slight but you could even say mustard seed size of comfort in the life everlasting and that well okay one day you'll eventually get out of purgatory and finally be able to get into heaven but you know that could be hundreds and thousands and millions of years from now it all depends on how many sins that you've committed all right again that's next week uh I encourage you to still be here. Wednesday is Pro Wrestling America. If you are not into the wrestling thing, skip right over it. That's fine with me. I know there are people who listen to the wrestling that aren't thrilled with the theology side. I can't please everybody. And I'm very well aware of that. So, But also Thursday, digging deeper into the Psalms, we will look at Psalm 34 and see what great treasures we have in God's sensory goodness where he encourages us to taste and see that he is good. And in that good God is the one who has reconciled us, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who has come not in vain. He was not born in vain. He did not live in vain. He did not die or rise again in vain. He died and rose and lived and lives again forever for you and for me to bring us that comfort that when he said it is finished on the cross, it was finished for you. Amen.